0: Then Jeroboam fortified Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and lived there. For there he went out and built up Peniel. Jeroboam thought to himself, The kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to their lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and return to king Rehoboam. After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. He said to the people, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Once he set, One he set up in Bethel and the other in Dan. And this thing became a sin. The people came to worship the one at Bethel and went as far as Dan to worship the other. I, Jeroboam, built shrines on high places and appointed priests from all sorts of people, even though they were not Levites. He instituted a festival on the 15th day of the 8th month, like the festival held in Judah, and offered sacrifices on the altar. This he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves he had made. And at Bethel he also installed priests at the high places he had made, On the 15th day of the 8th month, a month of his own choosing, he offered sacrifices on the altar he had built at Bethel. So he instituted the festival for the Israelites and went up to the altar to make offerings.
1: Okay, so there's Jeroboam's move. Now, let me explain what Jeroboam is doing here. What we're seeing in this passage is what you call this new leader of the northern region called Israel, sinning. What is Jeroboam's sin? sin? First of all, he moves to a town, Shechem, in the hill country of Ephraim, and he builds himself like a fort, which is his um, like place where he's going to rule from. And he, he kind of sets up the armies and the, the, the advisors around him and also in a town across to the east east. Then it says in the passage that he thought to himself, da 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 and this is just setting us up to realise this is all Jeroboam's idea. He is uh, coming up with this plan. This is not anybody else's idea here. See, so he's concerned that all the people around him, all these Israelites, or you guys that weren't born in January, <laughs> that they're going to eventually um, miss the leadership from um, Jerusalem and from the king in the line of David, and they're all going to go back to it and reject him as leader. So, you know, like a stretched rubber band kind of pulled out and, 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 and pulled itself back back together again. He knows that cultures find it very difficult, to, um, you know, cope with change. Just like, you know, uh, England, when uh, King Charles I was arrested um, during this, at the start of the Civil War, during the Civil War, you know, he was killed off under, by Oliver Cromwell and it only took England 10 years to go back and find Charles II and bring him back on the throne because people don't like that change. So Jeroboam's anticipating this, so he's trying to set things up so that they don't go back to, to to Jerusalem, and so he makes two golden calves, and he tells the people that they're they're the gods that brought them out of Egypt, and and uh, he makes up this kind of waffle, and he goes, uh, he sets one up in the sort of in Bethel, which is just north of Jerusalem, and then and then one in Dan, which is right at the tip of, of the land of Israel. So it's kind of covering both areas, and he's saying you can go there and you can make sacrifice and and worship worship God there. And this idol worship became really widely adopted across the northern kingdom. See, Jeroboam then just abandons all kind of concept of like obedience to God. He breaks these big, big theological principles of what it means to be an Israelite. First of all, there's this promise of God that um, the dynasty belongs to the line of David but he's setting himself up as king. Secondly, um, that the temple is the only place where um, the divine presence could be. And thirdly, that worship had to occur in a centralised place in Jerusalem. But he's kind of setting up golden cards and in multiple places he also sets up shrines. Basically, he moves so far away from the true religion, the, 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 the religion under the law of Moses, the deuteronomical law, Deuter- deuteronomy, deuteronomical laws. <laughs> I can't say it. I should never say it. Um, and within these violations of the law, he's breaking laws within laws. So, yeah, the non-centralized sacrifice, image worship, which is in the Ten Commandments. He ordains um, priests in this new kind of blended religion, which aren't from the tribe of Levi, and uh, he moves around the, the feast of booths, which includes Passover, to a different date. Um, And the fact that there's two calves implies a new kind of polytheism as well. So it's it's kind of like he's introducing polytheism into the great monotheistic religion of Judaism. Now, he may not have set out to do this intentionally, but he's messing around. He's trying to manipulate the people with religion. Jeroboam is blending popular culture with, with religion so much so that the people will draw to him. It's kind of a a false religion that looks a bit similar to the true religion. Um, These golden calves in Dan and Bethel, they're a bit like the um, Ark of the Covenant, I guess. You know, an image to point us to God, to represent the presence of God. But all of this led the people astray. It it looked like Baal worship, pretty much was Baal worship. And these shrines were particularly offensive because it looked like Canaanite religion. And, you know, the Israelites were supposed to destroy the shrines of the Canaanites, but here they were building them up again. And by the time of the prophet Elijah, which happens later, um, there's pretty much no one in Israel who hasn't bowed down to Baal. What's going on? What is the purpose of all of this law-breaking? Well, it was all designed to keep people away from Jerusalem. I just want us to think about here a bit about what Jeroboam's doing here and what it means for us. And i start with the power of symbols. The symbols and the actions, the aesthetic that we adopt um, in our worship, it actually does really have a powerful impact on people. Um, apart from the fact that the Ten Commandments say, you should not bow down to idols and we know that you shouldn't bow down to idols, there's more to it than that. The, the great Canadian philosopher Marshall McLuhan said, you know, the medium is in the message. It's not just what you say, but it's the vehicle that the message comes in that communicates so much. And for Jeroboam and his new religion, it came in a medium that looks like Canaanite Baal worship. Now you might be thinking to yourself, well, I can see that the Israelites back then would make that mistake, but we wouldn't make that mistake. It's just interesting to see, you know, um, how much we do make these mistakes. A friend of mine, uh, who's an Anglican minister, went to a Christmas service in an Anglican church, which shall not be named... Um, but it was one in Melbourne and he went on you know for the Christmas service and there was a, um, a Hindu um, statue of Vishnu on the communion table and um, I think people did yoga in the church and so he so it was there for that now that's bad for a lot of reasons but what does it say what does this message say it says um, you know uh, for the Christians it communicates a theology of universalism and also a uh, it says that um, the God of the Bible is just the same as the Hindu gods, probably just the same. We're a really welcoming and open church, you know, we just welcome every kind of form of theology. And it's also, you know, a form of polytheism. It's saying, you know, this, this Hindu God in the community, communion table is equally God as the God in the Bible. Um, and it says to non-Christians that this church is open and tolerant, but also that doesn't stand for anything. We should not underestimate the impact of symbols on ourselves. You might think we're, we're in a society that doesn't care about religious symbols, but I think we're hypersensitive about it. Actually, um, you know, in a, in a government and secular school setting, around Christmas time, people are very nervous about putting the Christmas nativity scenes up and being too um, obviously Christian in their communication. I think uh, we are actually in a society that's very aware of re- religious symbology. Um, so, Christians, we Christians should be very careful in how we use symbols. Um, we should be careful not to um, you know uh, underestimate the power and the effect of them on our own thinking and worship on the thinking and worship of other people. So as we approach Christmas, let's just be very aware of, of the image that we present. You know how obviously Christian are we in the symbols around our home, You know, I think it's good to be obviously Christian and to um, celebrate those things. And um, maybe in our workplace or in our schools, um, to, to promote Christian symbols, not because you want to be a wacky Christian, but because it speaks powerfully. Not let the pagan symbols dominate and let's remember Christmas is a a blending of a Christian and a pagan festival let's let the Christian symbols dominate and not underestimate the power of them the other thing I was thinking about is um, how this passage reminds us of how to interpret history it should be a wake up story for us Um, especially if you're a, a, a pinko lefty Christian some of you are that. not all of you some of you are pinko lefties, real hardcore lefties I love how in North Detroit and around where we live, um, you, you see the, the promotion of the Marxist club. So that there, the real left is. The other left is just a bit left, but they're the extreme. You know, if that's you, be careful not to jump onto every liberation movement that you that Facebook offers up to you, every freedom movement, because Jeroboam is the freedom fighter. He he's freeing the Jews, but he's actually the disobedient one. He was leading Israel into apostasy. Remind yourself that God's sovereign will works at a far higher level than any political struggle that we might be able to observe. We should be careful in the light of the massacre yesterday in Paris. Not to over-spiritualise it. We should not think that we understand what God is doing. Some Christians think that disasters like this mean that the end of the world is, is nigh. The warning of the Apostle Paul to the Thessalonians was that the end would come when they were thinking everything was safe. Though there is warfare in Syria, devastating earthquakes happening in Afghanistan back in October, famine in Pakistan and Ethiopia and elsewhere, the pestilence of Ebola in the west of Africa, horrific terrorist attacks in Paris, it doesn't mean we know what God is doing and what he's planning. Jesus warns that the end will come when his followers are not ready. Luke 21. We will be weighed down with the pleasures and the anxieties of life, says Jesus. And then the final day will arrive as a trap. It's important to, to observe history and to pray and ask God to um, bring his peace, but not to over spiritualize it. The third thing uh, I want to think about with what Jeroboam is doing is to not be conformed to this world. What we saw for Israel during this period was spiritual sickness and idolatry and false religion being embraced as a consequence of political and social changes taking place. Jeroboam, he had a political agenda and this had religious consequences. And so often this is the case for us. So often there's social and political forces at play that challenge our own faith. There's various political forces at play today, um, some which push us away from the kingdom of God, some which push us towards the kingdom of God. You know, uh, the the passion to help asylum seekers and to defend the poor and to promote um, um, climate care, environment care, They're, they're pushing us towards the kingdom of God. But then the messages that come through marketing about the, the 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 significance of the individual and consumerism—they push us away from the kingdom of God. There's an ethicist called C, um, uh, Layman, C. Stephen Layman, and he argues that Jesus' dominant ethic is um, basically do anything that ends in the consequence of promoting the kingdom of God. Jesus says, "Seek first the kingdom of God, and everything will be added. To, all these things will be added to you." You might want to spend some time meditating on this. When you're making your own decisions in your life, you can ask yourself the question, does this promote the kingdom of God? Does it promote harmony in relationships? Does it promote harmony in relationships between people and God and people and each other? Or does it actually hold back the kingdom of God? Does my decision break down the walls between people? Or does it put up walls? It's not enough for us to say, the political and social pressures that I'm facing are too much, I'm just going to have to change my, my faith, change my beliefs. Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer in John 17, not that God would take his followers out of the world, but that God would keep them from the evil one. They were not of this world, just as Jesus himself was not of this world, but they had to live by the principles of the kingdom of God. So to conclude, what do, we, what do we learn about Jeroboam? He is the king of sin. That's what he is. He's the king who was the author of sin. The kings that followed him, they were measured up against him. How bad are you, O king of Israel? You're just like Jeroboam. It's like the way we do now with dictators and Hitler. We compare him to the worst. This story started as a political rebellion, but became a theological rebellion, a rebellion against God. This was both an act of human rebellion, but it was also God fulfilling his word, judgment on the dynasty. He was going to bring humility to the line of David. Solomon had gone and centralised the worship, Jeroboam had gone and decentralised it. After everything that God had done for Israel, now they look no different to the worshipping Canaan, the pagan worshipping Canaanites. In a strange way, the foolish king, Rehoboam, Ro- the son of Solomon, who is an idiot, he ends up being the obedient one because him and his army listen to God and don't conduct the civil war. Jeroboam, the freedom fighter, the Che Guevara of Israel, ends up being the evil one, the king of sin. We've seen so far in the monarchy series that King David and Solomon, they are like Jesus. They they are types of Jesus. They point us to Jesus in so many ways. Jeroboam is the opposite. He points us away from Jesus. He's in complete contrast to the kind of king that we are to serve. Jeroboam led Israel away from God. Jesus leads us directly to God. Jeroboam brought division, Jesus breaks down the walls that divide. Jeroboam was the king of sin. Jesus is the king of righteousness. Jeroboam built false shrines. Jesus replaced the temple and became the living temple, the very presence of God. Jeroboam encouraged the Israelites towards worthless sacrifices to false gods. Jesus, the great high priest, became the ultimate sacrifice as he died on the cross and provided salvation, which is of ultimate worth to us. So as we look at Jeroboam, let's look at why two is